you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Our text today is going to be verse 21 through 25 in a message entitled, Facing Adversity and Opposition. So we think about living the Christian life in a sin-fallen world and all the things that we're going to encounter. We're going to consider what it means to face adversity and opposition in Jesus' name and do so in a way that honors him and does not compromise our testimony or our effectiveness for him as well. And we've been going through a series of messages as we've moved through the late spring and summer on what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. How can we be spiritually uh, developed and how can we be growing disciples so that we can be more and more like Jesus? Because that's what God's will is for us. And that's what we want to be. We want our Christian life uh, to be genuine. And we want to be a people who are more and more becoming like Jesus. Now, the Apostle Peter wrote this letter we call uh, 1 Peter to believers in Asia Minor. It's likely that he had preached the gospel uh, in that area. And they had been exposed to the faith. And they needed some encouragement as Christianity extended to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia in those first decades after the church began, uh, there were probably both Jews and Gentiles uh, that were a part of the church, and they were living their lives in such a way that it would cause them to stand out from culture. So just because of the way they lived, they stood out from culture, and they were also in conflict with culture. And he addresses persecution that they were enduring and that they would endure. And it applies to us as well as we think about living lives in such a way that we stand out from the culture, that we are even in conflict with the culture, not because we want to be, but just because we are a distinct people. So Peter addresses them as pilgrims in his letter. He's referring to them as temporary residents in a foreign land. And think about what a pilgrim does. A pilgrim lives with a constant awareness of their true home. And to use John Bunyan's language from Pilgrim's Progress, we are all headed toward that celestial city. This is not our final home. We know that. And we ought to live in a way that reflects that we know that. And as Hebrews 13 and verse 14 says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, I think God wanted these early followers of Jesus to be able to bear up under the suffering, and as they bore up under the suffering, continue to live well for Christ. But they, like us, uh, needed encouragement. They needed to know why it was that they were doing this. They needed to have an example of true perseverance so that they could keep their eyes focused on that. And here was Peter, who had been with Jesus for some three years. He saw close up a life of holiness in the midst of hostilities. And if the believers could look to Christ, they could live lives of holiness in the midst of the hostilities that they experienced as well. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter makes it clear that God calls his children to a living hope. And a part of that living hope is that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. It's an inheritance that comes to us from God and it does not fade away, and we are kept by the power of God through faith. So think about the progression here. God is with us in the midst of the difficulties. 
He has promised us something that is far better than anything we can even imagine. He's going to faithfully see us through until we arrive in that celestial city, that place that is our eternal home. And God is faithful to keep us and to bless us every step of the way. So even if it is for a short time, we suffer grief in various trials. And Peter makes it clear that our faith, if it's genuine, is going to be tested by fire. And when it's tested by fire, it's going to reveal whether it's genuine or false, whether it is strong or weak. And when he comes to chapter 2, he begins to focus on Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And one commentator noted that Jesus is the cornerstone of Psalm 118. He's the stumbling stone of Isaiah 8. He's the foundation stone of Isaiah 28. He's the supernatural stone of Daniel 2. And he's the rock that gave Israel water in the wilderness. And ultimately, he's the stone that the builders rejected. But the Bible says he has become the chief cornerstone. So our text today, 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 21 to 25, focuses on Jesus as the ultimate example of suffering. The immediate backdrop of it is he's speaking to people who were under cultural restraints of servitude and slavery and all sorts of difficult circumstances. And he's trying to tell them how they can live in such a way that, number one, they can survive uh, what they're doing and fulfill their responsibilities. But more importantly, they can give a testimony for Christ and their faith can be revealed as genuine. So I begin reading here in verse 21, and here's what the Bible says. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you follow Jesus in a sin-fallen world, you are certain to experience adversity in opposition. That's not a question at all. The question is, how will you respond? And will you respond in such a way that reflects that you are depending on God's presence and his power in your life to help you persevere? Not will you face these things, but will you persevere in a way that honors Christ when you do? C.S. Lewis wrote, we can ignore even pleasure but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. And it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So I want to share with you three realities of adversity and opposition and how to live for Christ in the midst of it. Number one, if you follow Jesus, you will experience adversity and opposition. Let's look again at verse 21. He says, for you were called to this. What's he talking about being called to? Well, Christians are called certainly to follow Christ. We're called to emulate his character. 
and his conduct, but I think you have been called for this purpose is the idea that it is pointing to suffering for doing good. So yes, you're called to Christ, you're called to live for him, but he's saying in this type of situation, when you find yourself in this type of darkness, in this type of difficulty, then this is how you're supposed to live. And he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now this word example is interesting because it appears only here in the New Testament. And it refers specifically to a writing or a drawing that a student would reproduce. So it'd be similar to the idea of, uh, of a blueprint that a builder would follow that's been drawn with the express instructions on what needs to be done. And of course, construction blueprints on paper are two-dimensional drawings that contain all the details needed for a project. Uh, the details are needed to request permits and to get supplies and ultimately to carry out the actual building project. And every builder needs to know how to read and to follow blueprints. And what he's saying to us here is, Jesus is the blueprint. Jesus is the blueprint for the Christian life, and particularly in this instance, to be able to face adversity and opposition. And because he has suffered for you, you should follow in his footsteps. Now, I love the way Kent Hughes put it. He said, Peter doesn't leave us on our own. He provides an example for us to follow. He said, there's perhaps nothing more beautiful in the English language than John Milton's depiction of, of the moment that God's son stood upon the rim of the universe in paradise lost. Seeing our need for a savior, he said to the father, I will go. So the eternal word of God took on flesh and this one, Jesus, the one who possesses all authority and all power, he humbled himself and he became a servant on our behalf. And Peter's basically saying, listen, friend, I know how difficult it is to live in this world. I know what you're going to deal with. And I've got an example for you to imitate. I have an exile for you to follow. The one who flung the stars into space, he's the one who will lead you if you will follow him and find your way through his direction. I want you to turn just for a moment a little bit further into 1 Peter, to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want to read just a few verses beginning in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, because he's once again building on this idea. And here's what he says. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead... Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And then finally says, and if a righteous person is saved, 
with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So hey, don't think about this being something that's strange. Why would we, if we are living for Christ, and we are in fact the light of the world, as Jesus says we are, why would we think that when the light of the world shines into the darkness, that everybody's going to receive it, and love it, and support it, and follow it? We should expect that there's going to be friction, and conflict, and adversity, and opposition. And Peter says, don't think about this being something that's a strange occurrence. Think about it rather as an opportunity for you, a way for you to partake in the sufferings of Christ. Now make this connection. He says, if you partake in the sufferings of Christ, you will also partake of his glory and joy. So suffering in that regard is a blessing because it identifies who we are following. And when we follow in the steps of Jesus, we're going to put ourselves at odds with the world. Now, you know how it is. That sometimes, uh, sometimes we are misunderstood and marginalized and even mocked. And in this struggle between good and evil and righteousness and unrighteousness, we're to expect it. Paul said everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here we have this instruction on what to expect, first of all. And he says, you better expect that this is what you're going to have to deal with. But then secondly, when you face adversity and opposition, you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. He says that both in chapter 2 as well as chapter 4. He said, you got a decision to make, first of all. You can either be surprised and act like it wasn't coming, or you can take it for what it is and suffer along with him. And while you do it, you can entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to the one who judge, judges justly. Now note here that in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 2, Peter makes his point, the point of what Jesus did, and he does it in this way. He does it in the way of contrast. So he tells us, first of all, what Jesus did not do before he tells us what Jesus did. And by telling us what Jesus did not do, it's a warning for us of how we are not to respond in these circumstances as well. He says, first of all, he did not commit sin. Adam Clark said he suffered, but not on account of any evil he had done or said. In deed and in word, he was immaculate, and yet he was exposed to suffering. Expect the same, and when it comes, bear it in the same spirit. So God's call to us is when we get in the middle of it and the pressure's on and the pain is increasing and the opposition is rising, our first response is to do something that is equally as bad from our sinful nature. Jesus did not have a sinful nature, but we have one. And we are inclined to commit sin, but that's not what Jesus did. But we're going to go deeper here because it says no deceit was found in his mouth. One commentator said Jesus lived a representative life. He lived a sinless life, and it was therefore a representative sinlessness. Our Lord's obedience stands in the place of our sin. 
His law-keeping is counted as the law-keeping of those who have faith in him. John wrote in 1 John 3 and verse 5, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. So what the scripture is indicating here is not that we and ourselves have the capacity to live a sinless life. Because you know that's not true. We all know that's not true. You can read 1 John written to believers and you can see very quickly that if we say we have no sin, then the truth is not in us. We are lying. That's what the scripture says. But the sinless life of Jesus is contrasted with the sinfulness of people. And what's in view here is not only did Jesus not have a sin nature, having been born of a virgin, but every thought, every word, every action of his life was pure. And he's described in Hebrews 7 and verse 26 as holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus knew no sin. When Pilate unjustly tried Jesus, he came to the conclusion, he said, I find no fault in him. The centurion at the foot of the cross said, surely this was a righteous man. And there's a connection here that I don't want you to miss in these verses to the book of Isaiah. And this is very interesting because there are numerous examples uh, and references in the New Testament to Isaiah the prophet's writings. Jesus himself referred to Isaiah uh, in talking about himself. Uh, Peter referred to the ancient prophet in seven different instances. And in these verses here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter explains that Christ was without sin... And what he does is he uses some allusions to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In fact, there's a quote from Isaiah 53 in verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. And here's the quote. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. So there's a, correct, there's a connection here between the Messiah, Christ the Savior, and the prophecy of the Messiah some 700 years before this. And Peter's drawing the two together to make a point. He says further, when he was insulted, he did not ins uh, insult in return. He didn't revile in return. What was he doing? He was ex exercising great self-control. Jesus, who was laughed at, mocked, they made fun of him and uh, as, as they called him the king of the Jews. And yet, he didn't insult in return. He suffered verbal abuse from the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers and the jeering crowds. His friends abandoned him. He was arrested. Religious people who should have known better because they had been told about the promise, they looked at him with disdain. And yet he didn't respond in kind. What do we learn from that? Well, when we are insulted, especially for our faith, the response often is to insult and return. Now, don't look at me all spiritual like that's not your response because that's my response. I've done it. You've done it. Fight fire with fire. I'm going to explain it where they can understand it. These are the things that begin to run around in our minds, but yet that's not how Jesus responded to the insults. That's not how he acted. 
And James 1 and verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he re- is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, I will say here that there is a time for righteous indignation. But nowhere here are we given the green light or anywhere else in Scripture, either in word or example, to respond to insults with insults. It's the opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. And then here's what Jesus said. Because your reward in heaven is great. What reward are you living for? What response are you living for? Are you living for the moment just to feel better, to just to say something, to try to make it go away? Are you living for the reward that God gives in heaven for faithfulness, for obedient service. As we read in 1 Peter 4, if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So you know what he's telling us in 1 Peter 4? The way to not respond in that regard is to be filled with the spirit. That's how I, I, we are incapable But if we are filled with the Spirit, God will give us the ability to respond in a way that honors Him. It says also, when He suffered, He did not threaten. What did Jesus suffer? Abuse. They hit Him in the face. They beat Him with rods. They scourged Him with whips. They put a crown of thorns on His head. They forced Him to carry the cross. They nailed Him to the cross. And you understand that in any moment in that entire process, Jesus could have stopped it with a word. And it had been over with. Now what he was sent to this world to accomplish would not have been accomplished. But he could have stopped it. So it wasn't the the lack of capacity to be able to stop what was happening. But it was the purpose for which he came. And therefore he did not retaliate. In Isaiah 53 and verse 7 in the prophecy says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Because when Jesus suffered, more than any of us could ever possibly suffer, he was standing in our place. He was there because he was willing to be there as the eternal plan of God, that he was bearing our sins. That's why he endured it. So that we would not be condemned for our sins. But that that judgment, that wrath of God was laid upon him. Those are the things Jesus did not do when he suffered. But now what did Jesus do? Well, the scripture says here, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In that moment and in his life, Jesus made a choice to trust God the Father who he knew would be the perfect judge at the perfect time. He trusted that his heavenly Father would vindicate him and provide all that he needed. 
God's described in the Bible in Psalm 94 as the God of vengeance. He's the God of justice. So Jesus handed over to God the entire situation, including himself and including the people who were persecuting him. And he did it because he knew that God would make all things right in his perfect timing. And this is the pattern for us to follow because there is ultimately only one judge. There is ultimately only one supreme court over all of the universe. And if you have been wounded, you can know that God loves you and he will not let the wrong that has been done to you go unpunished. He will take care of it in the right time and in the right way. And like Jesus, we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So here's the pattern. We entrust the situation to God. We entrust ourselves to God. And we entrust the people who are coming against us in opposition and adversity to God because he can be trusted and he's going to work it out. And he'll work it out far better than we would if we did it in an instant. And verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus bore our sins as the sin-bearing substitute. The word bore is a word that can mean carried up. And if that is the sense that it is intended here, and I think it is, it would mean that Christ carried up our sins in his body on the cross. We look to Jesus as our sin bearer. In the background for Peter's teaching is the symbolism of sacrifice that God appointed for Israel. Sin was pictured as a burden to be placed on the head of a sacrificial animal before it was killed. Death was the penalty for sin. And the sacrificial animal died in the place of the sinner who confessed his sin with his hands on the head of the animal. And that graphically pictured the transfer of the weight of the sin from the sinner to the substitute. And the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificed animal marked atonement that in fact the penalty for the sin had been paid. But it was not the ultimate penalty for sin that had been paid. What we see in Christ is that the suffering servant offered himself up once and for all as the sacrifice for our sins. What Peter's teaching us here is that Jesus was crucified not for his sins. He was crucified for the sins of his people and he bore those sins. Our heavenly father who gave his only son on our behalf can be trusted. And I want you to know that in whatever adversity or opposition you're facing, you don't have to solve it. God knows what circumstance you're in. He knows what you need. He knows every fact about the case and he will deal with it because you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And then third and finally, you can live for righteousness even in the midst of adversity and opposition. Now for verse 24. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. This points to what Jesus accomplished. Peter's basically saying, 
now in light of what Jesus has done, this is how you ought to live. He's saying, this is what happened to him. This is how he suffered. These are the things that were said falsely to him. These are the things that he did not do when that happened. This is what he did when that happened. This is what it means because he stood in your place and he bore the penalty that you deserved. And he said, now in light of what Jesus did not do and in light of what Jesus has done in accomplishing this for you, this is how you ought to live because this is the only way to live. And when you identify with Jesus by faith, you also die to sin. That means that your life is permanently changed by identification with Jesus on the cross. By faith, we die to sin because our debt was paid by Jesus. You don't trouble yourself over debts that have been paid. There's not a person in this building today that gives a single care about a debt that has already been paid. What are you concerned about in the life that you're living, you're concerned about the debts that are still outstanding. Well, this is a debt that has been paid. And before we are saved, our passion is sin. But after we are saved, our passion is the Savior. And he says, so that we might live for righteousness. You can live your life for a whole lot of things. Happiness, material wealth, pleasure, experiences, And I assure you, none of those will satisfy you apart from Christ being at the center of your life. And this righteous life that God is calling you to, it's a gift from God. And the reason it's a gift from God is because it is imputed to us in Christ. You have to have righteousness to be right with God. How do you have righteousness to be right with God? In Jesus. What kind of life are you being called to live after you have the righteousness of God? a righteous life. How do you do that? Through the righteousness of Jesus. Nowhere in here will you find a try harder, do better gospel because it does not exist. There's only one gospel. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel that said that God sent his only son to live and to die and to now live again for you. It's the message that says that Jesus Christ died in your place for the sins that you had committed. Even though he was without sin, he died for you. He willingly stood in your place so that you could stand righteous before God. And Peter's saying, listen, if you are declared righteous in Jesus before a holy God, then your life ought to be different. It ought to be different. How can you just live like the world? How can you respond to adversity and opposition like you're a lost person? That's not the way of Christ. That's not what we're being called to. But we can live for him. And we can pursue righteousness. You remember what Jesus said about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? In the Beatitudes, they shall be filled. Remember that? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else you need will be added to you. And the verse ends here that we just noted in 1 Peter chapter 2, quoting Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Now I want you to notice the connection here. Here's Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And, and here's the connection. And we are healed by his wounds. In Christ, we are healed from the penalty and the power of sin by his wounds. That's a juxtaposition. 
that the wounds of Jesus are the means by which we're healed. That the wounds of Jesus are the way that we are forgiven by God. And I think this ultimately is pointing to our spiritual destiny of eternal life with God. Open the message today talking about that celestial city that we're on our way toward. And I want us to just put ourselves in that comparison for a moment and think about this life that we've been called to, this life we're living. We didn't choose when or where we were going to be born. That was by the will and the good purpose of God. And we started our physical life, but if we are in Christ, at some point we were confronted with the gospel. And we came to faith in Jesus and our lives were changed. And we were set on a new path to follow Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image. As we look forward to and await that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And along the way, we've been called to live a life of faith. And that life of faith is to be reflective of the righteousness that we have in Christ. And here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, as you're walking that walk of faith, everybody's walking it. He said, don't be surprised and act like it's something unusual when you encounter difficulty. You can expect it, but what are you going to do with it? And my question for you today is, are you living in such a way that you are reflecting Jesus in how you respond to adversity and opposition? And are you entrusting the situations of life and yourself and the people you're dealing with to the God who judges justly? I'll tell you what happens if that's not the case. When you hit that adversity and that opposition, that time of suffering, especially as you live for Christ, if you try to handle that weight on your own, you end up getting bitter and being disappointed, maybe even being mad at God because you found yourself in such a circumstance. And God's saying, that's not how I want you to live. I want you to entrust yourself to me because I can be trusted. And he says here finally in the last part of what we read in First Peter chapter 2, that the shepherd and the overseer of our souls will lead us eternally. He's with us. And if it were not for Jesus willingly suffering, we'd still be going astray. We'd still be the sheep that was out there in the field somewhere by ourselves, prone to danger, all kinds of troubles. But here is the shepherd. This word shepherd is the word that we derive our word pastor from. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate pastor. The title overseer is where we get our word bishop from. First Peter 5, he's going to characterize Jesus as the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd is going to guide us and care for us every single step of the way if we'll trust him. He's enough. He provides everything that we need. But are we trusting him to do that? 
So as we come, to, come toward a close of the service today, this invitation and response has two parts. One, if you're in Christ and you've experienced what I'm talking about here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and you've, you've entrusted yourself to the one who judges justly and you've seen God see you through it and take care of you, I want you to take a moment as we pray and just thank God that he's not left you along the way. Thank him that you're not a sheep going astray somewhere out in the field somewhere. But here's what I know. I know enough to know today that there's some folks in here carrying some heavy burdens that you weren't intended to carry. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to bear the weight up by yourself. And God's saying, listen, that's not how I'm intending you to live. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, Jesus says. So the challenge for you today is to take whatever that is that's weighing you down so heavily, that adversity and opposition, that difficulty that you're suffering through right now, and say, God, I'm going to lay this at your feet because I can trust you. Even if my emotions are telling me I can't trust you, your word is saying that you can be trusted. And I would say also there's some of you here today who could give testimony that in those moments where your emotions were leading you to something else, and you trusted what you knew to be true, and you put your foot down in the midst of the storm, you found that there was a solid foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And your testimony is that even though you didn't feel like it in the moment, and maybe even people around you were telling you to respond in some other type of way and lead you down a different path, you said, I will trust in the Lord. And when you trust in the Lord, you found that he is faithful. That's what I want you to know today. He's faithful. Put your feet down on the solid rock. And the shepherd and the overseer of your soul will take care of you. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, this truth from your word from 1 Peter is such a stark reality for us. When we read it, we resonate with it because we we've experienced it or maybe you're experiencing it right now and it's not getting easier in this culture that we're living in if we stand for life we're made fun of we're jeered we're mocked we're hated if we stand for righteousness in many different regards in this dark world that we're living in we are pushed back against and made to seem of no consequence but lord this is the life you've called us to, to identify our lives with Jesus Christ. And we want to be bold in that. But most of all, we want to be surrendered. Because you're the God who makes all things new, and you're the God who makes all things right. So help us to live and to do what we've been called to in a way that honors you and that lifts up the name of your Son. Thank you, Jesus, that you're willing to stand in our place, that this righteousness we have is not a righteousness of our own. It's not of our own effort. It's a righteousness that is received as a gift. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. And I pray that we'd be able to put our feet down on solid ground, knowing that we are supported by the chief cornerstone, the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. So we give this time over to you, Lord. If there are spiritual decisions that need to be made, I pray that people will respond. And Lord, as you lead us by faith, that we would follow. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.